Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So coming off that previous section of Luke 22, verses 24 through 30, Matt Wesley had chimed in on the talk it over section of our reading plan. And here's what he said, how powerful a message Jesus gave his followers as they argued about who was greater. And he told them to be servants to the people, not that he was diminishing leadership, but to do it for the right reasons, to be humble and serve people with love and compassion and not lead for any reasons of personal gain or ambitions, which I I think that that's a great way of summing all this up. Matt goes on to say, Also, I have often wondered about Peter as it relates to his soul. As we look to Matthew 10.33, quote, But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven, end quote. And Peter denies Jesus three times in the same night, nearly to his face. And we talked mm-hmm. about the significance of the distinctions in that particular denial uh, and what that really looked like. There, um, knowing that there's a difference between him rejecting outright Jesus, uh, which is the prohibition in Matthew, which says, I'm going to reject you before my father, uh, and Peter uh, being scared for his life and mm-hmm. all manner of other things that are going on here, uh, disassociating with and being one of the sheep that are scattered, as Jesus foretold would happen. So there's some answers in the last podcast that have to do with that. Yeah, but I, think- I think that's great. It's a great question to ask. And one that if it's not, if you don't think through everything that Jesus said, he talked about Peter's faith faltering, not Absolutely. failing, but faltering. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, things we have to look at there. As you've said, it's, it is, it's, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to, to read what seems to be two of the same circumstances. And it's really, uh, uh, as you get into the detail of it, the circumstances are actually different yeah. in between a, as you've said, a rejection and a faltering in faith. Yes, and I think that I think that that fine nuance difference really is where uh, loving each other and having grace in the struggles that we deal with each one of us is important. Mm-hmm. We should uh, we are called to reprove brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are also called to do that in a an attitude in a heart of gentleness. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. Sometimes it's real easy to, uh, to just say off with your head or, you know, you're a heretic or, or you're, you know, you're out, but the, um, the better way for us to do that is to take the proper steps according to the scripture. And that is to really weigh what's happening and to be slow, 
to speak and quick to listen. I think that that's really mm-hmm. important. So what we're going to deal with uh, today is verses 54 through 71. We're going to deal with uh, Jesus's arrest and Jesus before ultimately the Sanhedrin, but we're going to talk through that language because there's some interesting language in this. So starting at verse 54, we're just going to kind of set the stage for what's happening and we'll chime in as we go through this verse by verse. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. I, I love this, that even though he's scattered, he runs like everybody does in the garden. They run away from this situation. Peter is Peter is very curious of what is happening to his Lord, and he is distraught over this situation. So he's running at a distance. Now, they talk about bringing him to the house of the high priest, although it is not listed in this gospel, it is listed elsewhere that Caiaphas was the high priest mm-hmm. at this particular time. Mm-hmm. He was, and it, we know that from a, a couple of other scripture that talked about his father-in-law, who had been the uh, the, uh, the the high priest uh, but had been, I guess, deposed by the Roman, uh, the Roman authorities, but he still had a, he, he was the power behind the high priestly office. It was believed and in, and in many ways, and there's a couple of scripture in John that elite that allude to the fact that, that, that it was Annas who was kind of calling the shots. He still had a lot of say so in Caiaphas, him being his, Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So, but you're right in that uh, the legal high priest was Caiaphas. And the other, the other interesting thing that we're going to see here about those two guys is that uh, it seems to me that they, there, there was a palace generally, or a large home that the high priest occupied and lived there. And it seems like these guys may have at least lived in the same area or that same palace, if you will. Yeah. Uh, when they, but but we're going to see a lot of things here that these guys did that were outside of the law of the Jews. So yeah. there's a, yeah. there's a lot going on here. So verse fifty five jumps in, and after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. Now just kind of uh, putting all of this together. They had arrested Jesus, they had led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. Now, when it says after after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, not among the high priests or, or, or those people. Mm-hmm. He's among this kind of outside entourage. They seems to change uh, who we're talking about here, just as an interesting point mm-hmm. there. Then verse 56, and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him. So she's kind of staring him down. She's, <laughs> she's seen this guy before. Uh, she says, this man was with him too, but he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Now we're back to that whole argument of denying Jesus before men. I don't know him and I don't profess him as Lord. I know that that sounds like just playing games here, but it really is the difference in what Jesus, mm-hmm. what Peter is doing with Jesus. He's he's scared for what 
uh, I suppose, what happens to him. And, and this, this brings out a very important, uh, it brings about a very important series of questions that we all have to wrestle with at some point. And that is, uh, the, the question was posed a long time ago that said, if, if somebody broke into your house and was holding your family hostage and said, unless you, unless you, you know, uh, say you don't believe in Jesus, you know, I'm going to kill your family. What would you do in those situations? Mm-hmm. And uh, although the, the, those are hard questions to deal with and answer, I think the same grace that was shown to Peter would be shown to us in those situations. Mm-hmm. Peter is Peter is in a very hard place where he's panicking about what they might do to him since his Lord is now just thrust into a trial. He's, he's thrust into being arrested. Although Jesus goes willingly, that that's not to be missed here, but that he's thrown into a trial and Peter is fearful for his life. All of this also is prophetic. So there's, there's some part of this that is just inevitable that it will be fulfilled. But, um, but this, this is kind of where we get these deeper questions that say, what would you do? And, and is this rejecting God? And, and will he reject you before men? Or will he be gracious to us like Peter, like he was to Peter? And I, I, think, I think based on the, the testimony of Scripture, uh, his grace would be there for us. So let's I, just pray we're not in that position. Absolutely. I think you're right. And I, I really love what you've said about the about the difference between what Peter does here and the absolute denial of Christ or a rejection of Christ long term. And I think the the reason that I see exactly what you're saying and seeing that it, it, we have to study this out to see that difference, but it, it's proven out, I think, later by Jesus himself. When Peter sits down... Uh, after Jesus has died on the cross and he's arisen again and he shows up to them again, and there's actually a point at which and it's kind of almost, it's really odd that it's a parallel point that it's a, uh, just a few days after he's sitting around this fire with all these people that hate Jesus, it's just a few days later that he's sitting around a fire that's, that the Lord had built, had kindled himself. And at that point, that it's, That would be the point I would think that if there was a denial of Christ to the point of losing your soul over that Jesus would have said, Peter, you you have denied me. You're not one of mine. But Jesus Jesus asked him and confessed to him three times that he loved him. And, and, And Jesus, this would have been an opportune time for Jesus to have said, you've denied me. You, you're, you're not one of mine. Right. He did not say that. So I think we have to, that this is the luxury that we have to be able to walk through the scripture and say, now we can read before and after all this and see that we, we understand what Jesus said, that you're going to deny me. Your faith is going to falter because as he had said, Satan, the Satan had come in and asked to sift all of them and that's exactly what he was doing. Yes, very and much. So it's I I just love that fact that we're able to walk through this and confirm what we believe to be the truth. Yeah, and and remembering that uh, one of the twelve had already 
walked away. Yes. I mean, Judas had walked away. This is a this is a uh, biblically documented fact. Now, where are we in the in the story of redemptive history? Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. He has not spilled his blood for the world. He has not. Uh, risen from the grave, he has not poured out his spirit. So some might argue, um, some might argue that you know this is because nobody had been regenerate yet. Uh, that proves the point even more. Peter could have been rejected by Christ immediately, mm-hmm. but Christ shows compassion and mercy to him, and I think the importance of that compassion and mercy. Uh, is is for us. We're not we're not doing what Judas did. We're not we're not the son of perdition. We're not we're not in that place. And there is not an outright rejection of Jesus as Lord. There is a there's a saving of one's own skin. Sure. Uh, and Peter regrets that, and we're going to see it in just a mm-hmm, second. So mm-hmm. verse 56, a servant girl. Uh, this is an interesting thing because in the Synoptic Gospels, all of them state that this servant girl was actually a maid. Uh, John's Gospel doesn't uh, specify who she was. So a servant girl or a maid, doesn't matter which, and most likely was both. Uh, a servant girl who was a maid, seeing him. As he sat in the firelight, looked him, you know, stared him down. This is, this man was with him too, but he denied it, saying, "Woman, I do not know him." Now, I think that that uh, verse fifty-seven is an interesting, uh, interesting phrase of how Peter responds to this maid, to this uh, servant girl, uh, by saying, "Woman, I do not know him." We we remember in the Gospels that it talked about when Jesus performs his first miracle in Cana turning water into wine, he says to his mother, he says, woman, it is not my time. Mm. And many people look at that and wonder about the kind of way he addresses his mom. Well, you have to look at the way that Peter addressed this person too. And no, this is not a case of women were treated poorly, so therefore uh, they referred to them as woman. Hey, woman, none of that. If that were the case, then Jesus would be sinning. Jesus would be uh, adopting the cultural norms, which would not be pure or right. Uh, woman was simply a, it actually was a respect. It was a, it was a, a title. And so woman, this and that, it wasn't viewed as a negative in their day. So Peter is not shooting her down. He's simply uh, too busy worried about his own skin. Yeah. So <laughs> that's really important in that, just a, just a piece of linguistic issue there. Yes, it's, it's extremely important because we 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 read from uh, from the account of this in John that we know that one of these girls was a relative of the uh, of the one who Peter had cut cut his ear off. So we John John tells us, and and it may have been this second girl that that's servant girl. But but John says that that one of them that one of them recognized him as being. Uh, p- possibly that guy. So it e- even lends more credence to the fact that he would have, if he would have known, and I, we don't know that he knew who she was, but there is a pretty good chance that he may have known who she was, or she she certainly seemed to know who he was. And that would have been far more likely that he would have said, wow, if they recognize I'm the guy that cut off that guy's ear, that's not going to go well for me. Exactly. Thus, Jesus is, Jesus is uh, uh, identified as being with the, the thieves or the, mm-hmm. the, the 
the rabble-rousers, and Peter was kind of the chief guy in yes. that. Even though they weren't really that entourage of people, uh, they sure got the label quickly. So you're right. In in identifying him, Peter is saving his own skin. He's worried about what happens to him. So verse 58, a little later, another saw him and said, and we're going to confirm that issue of how did they address women, woman, I do not know him, by how they addressed men in Mm -hmm. this culture. And a little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. So he's addressing woman as woman. He's addressing man as man, just an important uh, Mm -hmm. piece there. Man, I am not. And then 59, after about an hour had passed, another man began began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. Uh, But Peter, again, addressed him and said, man, I do not know Mm -hmm. what you are talking about. Now, if we back up just to the second denial here, another one saw him. Nobody knows exactly who this is. Some translations say someone else saw him. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel would would refer to that. Uh, But but in this one, a man, you know, mm-hmm. saw him. Mm-hmm. Another in this particular thing was a man. Um, uh, it is, it is an interesting, um, it is an interesting thing that the emphasis is put here in Peter's denial. You know, I'm not, but what is he not? One mm-hmm. of them too. Mm-hmm. He he talks about being of them too. What what does that mean? Maybe the people of the way, maybe in association with with uh, the other apostles, right? All, all of that would be there uh, in Mark's gospel. Uh, in Mark fourteen seventy, we see Jesus. Uh, we see a denial of Jesus, but he, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying, "Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too." He had denied in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel. It seems to imply he denies Jesus again. Luke seems to only record a component of this, which says that he he. Re- rejected the idea that he was one of them, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. one of them mm-hmm. meant. But nonetheless, the rejection three times is the rejection uh, of uh, what Jesus prophesied mm-hmm. would be the case. Mm-hmm. He would deny him three times. Yeah, I think it's, it's very, it's, it is very notable. And I, I love the, some of the details that uh, we've talked about this a lot, but Luke in 22, or I'm, I'm sorry, in 59, this, this last man that that uh, says uh, this man actually gives reasoning behind why he believes he was one of them. He said, certainly this man also was with him for he is a Galilean too. Now scholars will tell us that he knew he was a Galilean because of his accent, the way he pronounced his words. We, we, we know that they spoke a, an, a, a, a really strange hybrid version of Hebrew, Aramaic Hebrew is kind of what you will hear it called. But but the but the pronunciation of words in the way that a that a Galilean spoke versus someone who was from the Jerusalem area was drastically different, and it was it was immediately noticeable. For this man has obviously noticed that he's a Galilean because of the way he spoke, his Absolutely. accent. And if, so, we, and if we look at Matthew's gospel, uh, we go even further than just scholars' confirmation of it. We have the biblical record which mm-hmm. says, surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. So yes. effectively, 
Peter here and Galilean sounded a lot like Barney versus yeah. sounding like me. And so, because uh, if you don't know this, I don't have an accent. I am from the Midwest. So I have, I have perfectly uh, awesome speech with no accent whatsoever. <laughs> Meanwhile, Barney, on the other hand, he's from God's country. Yeah, so yeah. God lives in Tennessee. You know, that, I'm right? not <laughs> sure that God talks like that, though. I mean, God might talk more like That's my mom funny. saying basketball. But it doesn't doesn't matter. So, nonetheless, we move on. So, I love I love all of this. So, certainly, this man is also with them. He is from Galilee. He is a Galilean too. Uh, the accent gives him away. That the this is this is true across the board. We we can kind of identify people groups. Uh, and so this guy's this guy's identifying. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting that he he puts him in Galilee. They they must have just felt like this is this troublesome place mm-hmm. or something, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, they, they knew it was him. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. I don't have an accent. No, he didn't yeah. say that. <laughs> but, it, you know, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediate lo- immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Now, as I read the story and as I've read the story since I was a kid, that moment has always stood out to me as the moment when you know you have done what you should not have done. There is this, there is this sign, there is this thing that, that draws your attention to, I just messed up. I just did the wrong thing. And I imagine in this moment, exactly what the scripture is going to tell us, but I imagine in this moment, the deep sinking of Peter's heart Mm. because Peter up to this point had been so adamant to Jesus that he would go with him to the death Mm -hmm. that he's going to, I mean, he's going to fight alongside his Lord. He's going to be there. He's going to do whatever it is. And, and it makes me, it makes me reflect on all of those moments in my life where I've, where I've vowed my undying commitment Mm -hmm. to God and how I'm never going to falter and never going to waver and then my humanity takes over, mm-hmm. and, I, and I trip more than uh, a toddler learning how to yeah. walk, you know, and, and it's so frustrating. And so this rooster crows, and the scripture tells us in verses 61 and 62, it says that Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. He doesn't, he doesn't go out just heartbroken. He doesn't go out saying, darn, I sinned again. I guess I got to go repent. He goes out and he weeps bitterly mm-hmm. because he knows exactly who he is really. Mm-hmm. And this at, at, it's at this point and this is this is beyond drama here. This is uh when when we read verse uh 61 that says that after Peter had said man I do not know what you're talking about and the rooster crows and in this courtyard Jesus is within at least seeing distance of him. It says, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Jesus, through the crowd of people, made eye contact, it seems, with Peter. And Peter when we read and we hear about this, and the way that you've descri- described it is is, is heart wrenching. Uh, Peter is immediately convicted of of his sin that he had 
not just the denial of, of Christ, but think about the pride that led him to say, I, I won't deny you. I will go to the death with you. Think about the, the pride, the sin of pride that had made him uh, uh, say those things. And, and all of this has to come flooding back on him. Even the very word, the Greek word that the, the, that's used for the word looked is not is, is a little different than what we think of when we look when we think of the word look or looked. In that, it usually signified a extreme interest, a love, even concern, and and that's what it talks about when it says that 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 the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Yeah, my goodness, it the 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 emotion of what he has done and the realization of what he had done just comes flooding back to him. Yeah, I think when we when we put this into uh, just practical, everyday, living out our Christian life, and we make these commitments to God, and we and we talk about following Him and, and serving Him and proclaiming the gospel to the world around us, all, all of which we must do. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's make sure that that is still our aim, that is still our target. Uh, going to the end with Jesus is our aim. Okay, so Peter was not wrong in his zeal for the Lord. It's wonderful kinds of things. But there is this idea that says, you know, our resolve, like you you talked about pride, our resolve is going to carry us through in these situations. I want us to think just practically, Peter had Jesus standing with him. Mm -hmm. Peter walked with Jesus for several years. Peter learned from the Lord of glory, and he couldn't remember the words of Jesus telling him that he would deny him three times. He couldn't remember those words until he had done the act. He's walking through this courtyard and he's denying. He's, I don't know him. I don't, I'm not among those people. It doesn't matter what you think. I'm not with him. The rooster crows and the text says, the text says, um, uh, he turned, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, mm-hmm. how he had told him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. It was in the moment that he looks at Jesus, that Jesus looks at him, that he remembers everything that was said to him and he is broken. He's, he runs out weeping bitterly. I think for us in our practical life, in our walking with Jesus, we have these great ideas, these uh, you know, delusions of grandeur on how great we're going to be and all this supposed resolve. And in the moment, we're forgetting all the things that God has said to us, uh, like stay the course, stand firm, hold fast, you know, endure to the end, all of those things. We forget that kind of thing. But then there's those moments when we feel God's gaze looking at us, and maybe it comes from us opening God's word, and we read it again fresh, and we read it again new, and all of a sudden we hear, and we feel, and we sense God looking at us, and it's in that moment we remember, and our hearts just break again. Mm-hmm. You know, it, our hearts just break. Mm-hmm. There is, I, I can't think of a series of verses that are more charged with emotion than these verses, oh because, not just because Peter weep, weeps bitterly, but because Jesus looks at him, and it doesn't say Jesus looked at him and Peter took away from it that now he's lost and needs, you know, he's, he's destined for hell. He, he doesn't say any of that. His heart is broken because he now 
realizes, I I might as well be lumped in with Judas. I mean, I feel the same way. He's not the same as Judas, fine. But man, there's just such emotion in this. And so Peter Peter goes out weeping bitterly and you just feel for him. And then you look in the mirror and you realize we are... We are Peter at times. Absolutely. We, what we don't want to forget is that this makes my mind go back to verse 32 where Jesus had told him that Satan was wanting to do all this. And G- Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith won't fail. We, there was hope here. There was hope because... While it was completely, Peter needed to weep bitterly. He had to weep bitterly, but he wasn't without hope. As 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 clear as it was that Jesus said, "You're going to deny me," that that promise that your faith won't fail because I have prayed for you was just as true. Peter Peter had. He, his faith faltered, but he did not fail. We, we see that he's he will be restored here. So there's it, and while at the time it is bitter and it is it is beyond. And it, when he when the when the emotion and the and the the understanding of what he has just done floods into him, it it's he he had to feel like that he was. He had no hope, but he actually had hope. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think this is where some of the tougher questions of Scripture arise. We have Peter, who has denied the Lord three times. And then we have somebody like Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus. Both of which uh, have a verse in Scripture that's something akin to verse 62, and they wept bitterly. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between Peter... And uh, Judas, what what is the difference between these two people's response? Because we we think, well, if weeping bitterly is the sign of true repentance, then isn't Judas repentant? And isn't that the the case? Here is here's my take on it, and it's worth considering, and it's worth having a greater conversation. So I'd love to hear from you on this if you've ever wrestled with this, but. Judas seems to declare through the pages of Scripture that his weeping was that he had betrayed an innocent man. Mm. This is Judas's response, that he had betrayed an innocent man. But Peter's weeping bitterly and Peter's confrontation with Jesus later when Jesus is resurrected and he comes, uh, you know, and, and cooks breakfast for them and asks Peter the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter professes, Lord, you know I love you. So the, the, the important thing here is that weeping is not the sign of true repentance, mm. uh, although it will come with true repentance, I believe. Uh, weeping bitterly is not a sign of true repentance, although I believe that that will come with true repentance. I think it will accompany true repentance. But true repentance is that Judas responds with, uh, Judas responds with, I have betrayed an innocent man. I don't think he's worthy of death, in other words. Mm. I don't think I should have done that. Peter has just betrayed his Lord. Mm. 
That's the deal here, okay? Now, we've got to go even further with this because Jesus has already told us that on that day, some will come to him and they'll say, Lord, Lord, we did this and that in your name, but but he will respond, depart from me, I never knew you. The, the, the confession of uh, the, the title of Jesus being Lord is not a guarantee of true, true repentance and life lived in surrender. It will accompany true surrender and life lived in repentance. But the one who professes Lord, the one who weeps in bitterness in their repentance, the, uh, that is truly saved is the one who in their heart believes Jesus to be who he says he is. Mm. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Mm. And we have to be able to connect all of those crazy loose ends because they're they're everywhere in the scripture, but we have to be able to tie you know together all these loose ends in order for us to come to a reasonable understanding of what sets Peter apart, he's denied, he's rejected, uh, but he has is shown grace, he's shown mercy. What is the difference mm-hmm. in this? All of these things have to be weighed and measured in that argument. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. there's my thoughts for that. I love that. I love it because it is it is absolutely key to understanding the scripture. And as you said, if if we don't do that, we will go away thinking that we have the exact same circumstances and one guy made it and one didn't. That's just yes. not the case. It's not the case. And God's word is clear. God is no respecter of persons. Right. In that case, what we're saying is that it is an equal opportunity salvation. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So equal opportunity in 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 being qualified for sinner. We all qualify. <laughs> but it's an equal opportunity savior in that those who will repent and believe will be saved. Mm-hmm. And the only instrument of that salvation is Christ Jesus. And that is the act of grace. And we we simply believe it by mm-hmm. faith. So mm-hmm. this story continues to unfold after Peter weeps bitterly. Verse 63 says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. So, so just think about this. Peter runs out weeping in bitterness, and it seems as though God God affords him that out. He looks at him and affords him that out just before it really gets ugly because you have to imagine Peter would weep worse. Or maybe, just maybe, Peter would do something he he need not do. Yeah. Jesus has to go to the cross. Yeah. So Peter is gone, right? Peter went out and wept bitterly. And then the next thing we see is that those who had Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. Mm-hmm. And they blindfolded him and were asking him saying, prophesy, who is the one who hits you? This mockery of going mm-hmm. on about Jesus. And they were saying many other things against him, mm-hmm. blasphemy. This is, a, this is some of the hardest scripture to read that we, have, that, that we have available to us. This is so difficult to see and to hear the details of this. But this, and I think you're right. I think we have to look at this and say, you know, it, it, there's so many what ifs. And I think that it was truly by the mercy and grace of God that Peter was able to uh, to be out of the situation and not see what was happening. Had Peter, as you somewhat alluded to, done something stupid, if he had pulled out a sword and tried to 
fight them. He would have been dead. That was they had. He was far outnumbered, and that wasn't. That was not God's plan. You know, we. I've talked a lot re, uh, recently about the sovereign will of God, and we don't. We don't always understand how that plays out, but at some point, Peter is destined to preach a sermon where thousands of people get saved, and and he he can't get killed at the hands of the authorities at this point. That's right. that's not God's sovereign will. Yes. So we 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 see this, and it just it's a perfect example of something that we see happening. We can't necessarily, it's difficult for us to see the good in any of this. It's hard to even read what's on the pages of Scripture here. Without but we know that this is, what's, what's, what's going on here is a prime example of the sovereign will of God that we, we don't, uh, I'm sure that Peter and many others involved at this time did not, did not understand how this could, good could ever come of this. It appears that, um, as we read in Scripture, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that he was, he was crucified, he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Uh, this seems to coincide very, very uh, clearly with Isaiah 50, verses 5 and 6, or Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. Most of us are very familiar with Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one uh, whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Uh, we've got we've got echoes here of, of Peter rejecting Jesus. We've got we've got this uh, acquaintance with grief and sorrow and all of the the pain that Jesus is actually undergoing here. So so again, prophetic utterances being fulfilled even in this moment which is that makes the the bit even more challenging because Jesus knew that this was the cup that he had to drink from this he knew that this was what he was about to do so the men who were beating him were most likely uh, uh, were less likely the members of the Sanhedrin and more likely guards or servants of the Sanhedrin. Yes. There's debate on that, but, uh, but it, it seems less likely that the servant, uh, that the Sanhedrin, these men would have done this. It would seem to go against mm-hmm. their codes and, and how they were supposed to, to be. Uh, this whole blindfolded piece is very interesting uh, because it, it, all of this just seems to be this, constant mockery of Jesus to blindfold. I mean, why, why are we going through this? Why does Jesus have to be tortured this way? Why does he have to undergo this kind of pain and this kind of misery? Uh, because truly, truly, this is the wickedness of men's hearts. Mm. This is this is what people will do even to the one claiming to be God in the flesh mm-hmm. in front of them. Mm-hmm. Blindfold him. And, to, and, and demand that he prophesy, who hit you? Mm-hmm. He's already told you too many things and you didn't believe him. We're going we're gonna to see this in just a second when, when Jesus responds in the, in the last part of this, this chapter when he said, you know, if I asked you a question, you wouldn't answer me. If I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Mm-hmm. So all of this, uh, to all of this torture, Jesus sits quietly and it just yeah. seems... Yeah. It seems unfathomable. It does. And it's it's you know, it's it, it's almost easier to read this if you think that 
these guys didn't necessarily know who he was, but and and that's in one sense that would that's true. They there were I think you're right. I think you're I think the ones that were doing the beating and the mocking were these Jewish guards, these Sanhedrin, they're officers of the temple, uh, Herod's guards and, and the Roman guards. There's a, three different groups there. But you have to think about these guys that were obviously of the Jewish faith, if they were the officers of the, uh, of the temple, the, the Sanhedrin, they worked directly for the Sanhedrin. But these are, these are Jews as well. And, and they're, they're, so the fact that they didn't know who he was, they should have known. And, and, and in this, we're going to see that the Sanhedrin is completely culpable in all of this because they break their own law with this trial, this trial at night. So it's not necessarily that they're doing this because I, I think they didn't absolutely didn't believe that who, he was who he said he was. There may have been some there that said, man, I, this guy did things that nobody else has done, but they were... They're, they're all completely culpable because all of them had the opportunity to acknowledge Jesus. Yeah. All of them would have said, hey, I can't do it. Some did, actually. But these guys would have, my goodness, they couldn't say they didn't know who he was necessarily. If we remember back, Jesus asks the disciples, you know, who do the people say that I am? And of course, then he turns it to Peter and the others and says, who do you say that I am? And, and when it when it was about the people, they talked about being a prophet or, you know, maybe Elijah or John the Baptist, whatever whatever that actually meant to those people in their responses. But then, of course, Jesus turns this to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? You know, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And flesh and blood hadn't revealed that, but God, uh, the Father in heaven and, and all of that. But what I bring that up to say that there were there were clear identifiers to who Jesus was thought to be. Uh, there was the identifier that he was a prophet, and everybody believed this about Jesus. There, you know, and they were and they were paralleling him or comparing him to Elijah and John the Baptist and these people that were highly respected. So, prophet is a clear claim. In Jesus's ministry, clear claim in Jesus's ministry that people see him to be a prophet. However, the reason why they're they're angry with him is not because he's just a prophet. Uh, they they like prophets in some ways, uh, generally not while they live, <laughs> but mm-hmm. afterwards. Right? This is why Jesus would say, you know, you your fathers kill the prophets, but you build sepulchers mm-hmm. to them, and and so you miss you miss the point. So so prophet is a clear title that Jesus was known by, but the the. The piece that's got them infuriated is this idea that he could be Messiah. He He's claiming to be something like this. And we know that this claim is an overt claim. His followers, he has ridden in to Jerusalem on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. His, his followers have spread out their cloaks and waved palm branches and said, Hosanna in the highest. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things are happening. And if you remember from that chapter in Luke, it said from that moment, they sought to destroy him. They, they were so infuriated with this claim about Jesus. So his, them blindfolding him is almost them saying, this is not like a Jewish custom. They didn't, they didn't, 
throw would-be prophets under a blindfold and say, prophesy who hit you. That This isn't a, a Levitical test right. is where I'm going with this. This seems to be just mockery of this situation, which then concludes, then leads me to conclude this. They didn't believe, of course, him to be Messiah, and they didn't want to hear that. They, they thought that to be blasphemy. But the truth is they didn't even believe him to be a prophet. They didn't want anything to do with him. That's why they go through this little ruse and they say, prophesy who hits you. In other words, let's make him, let's, let's make him look little before anybody who's watching in this little show we've got going on so that we can, so that we can nip this thing in the bud. Like we just want to crush this whole situation. And so they blindfold him. They're abusing him. They don't believe him to be prophet. They don't believe him to be Lord. As a matter of fact, they just thought he was blaspheming mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. which we see at the end of verse 65. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the strangest part about this sometimes as I read this is they, they were asking him to prophesy and tell who is it that hit you. If Jesus were to draw on his power as God, he could have he could have told them exactly who yes. hit him. He could have told them, and and the fact that the father stayed his hand and the extreme act of mercy of God here to allow this to happen. It's, it's hard to even say that God stayed his hand while they were doing this to his son. It's hard to it's hard to read. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to understand. But the love of God that said, I, "I'm going to oh, I'm going to make him become sin, so that you can be righteous." Yes, that's a, a, unbelievable. Yeah, when you put all of this together with Jesus hanging on a cross and saying, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do," and we're all mm. looking at it saying, "They know full well what they're doing." You see, this situation, Jesus doesn't consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped. Where he just goes, "I know it was you." Jonah. I know you hit me. I mean, could you imagine the conviction if that man, uh, I'm just making up a character here, but if that man had been called out by Jesus himself, but instead he allows this to go on. He just allows this to happen. And we find it hard to forgive people when they have slightly hurt us. Mm -hmm. Even if they've hurt us deeply, we struggle with forgiveness, and Jesus is just taking this over and over. This, it's just staggering to think mm-hmm. through the way he handles this. So verse 66, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, so just just think about this whole situation. He has undergone this kind of mockery and torment uh, from an evening trial now into the morning. Mm -hmm. Now into the morning. So when it was day, they they do this again, and they they lead him to the chambers, and they say, tell us us, uh, if you are the Christ. But he says to them, and this is just amazing, because this is probably why he stays his... God power. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. 
But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, one of the things that is uh, missing from Luke's account that is found in the other uh, Gospels is um, you will see him coming on the clouds. This idea of coming on the clouds is really a, a cool picture that also gets stated there. But uh, let's just kind of zero in first on the idea of even if I told you, you wouldn't believe, and if I asked you a question, you wouldn't answer. He knows their hearts; yes. they've shut down to him. Yes, it's it, and and they're they're in a in a quandary here because of the of the they've had this illegal trial at night. Their own law said that all criminal trials had to begin and end in the daylight. They've had a trial at night, so they have to conjure up this new trial. They they had to do this because they knew that the first one had no legal standing. So in an effort to say, okay, we know we've done something illegal here, but we're going to turn around and try to make this right by uh, turning around and do this mock mockery of a trial here by day so that we can say we did it according to the law. And the, it, it isn't any wonder that that Jesus says, uh, it, it, he says, if I tell you, you're not going to believe. You, you, they, he, you're exactly right. He knew their hearts. If, they, if he were to ask them something, Jesus says they're not going to answer. It, it would reveal to the people around. Jesus already knew what their heart was. But if they answered any of the questions truthfully, it exactly. would reveal to everybody what their heart was about. Yep. My goodness. So uh, verse 67, if you compare this to what we read in Mark's gospel, Mark fourteen sixty-one, we actually find out who uh, asks this question or poses this statement, if you are the Christ, tell us. It's the high priest. Verse 61 says, but he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? So it's a bit of a combination yeah. of of uh, of uh, the the question or the statement in 67 in Luke's gospel and the question in verse 70 in Luke's gospel. But nonetheless, here's what we conclude from this. Put the put the accounts together and it's actually the high priest who's asking this question. Now, here's, here's an interesting thing that helps with our understanding of history, our understanding of Jesus's sinless response to this. Um, the question would be, is Jesus really just responding to them and saying, if I told you, you wouldn't believe if I, if, and if I asked a question, you wouldn't answer. Uh, is he really just not doing it because they won't listen? Uh, there's more to it than that. And here's why there's more to it than that. He also knows that he's going to preach his gospel to a world that has hardened hearts and deaf ears that they, they have res- rejected him. They've resisted him. So if that logic played out, he should have never come preaching because they weren't mm. going to listen to him in the first place. No, there's something more going on here, and it's really worth uh, delving into to gain a better understanding that Jesus, even in his silence, is obeying um, he's obeying God's word. Okay. So, uh, after Jesus is placed under oath, uh, silence would have been a confession of guilt. If Jesus had solely sat quiet, he has to say something, 
Okay, um, but he if he would have if he would have sat silent, it would have been a confession of guilt. We find this from places like Leviticus five one. In Leviticus five one, it says, "Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration." Uh, to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. So isn't that amazing? If you don't speak, mm. you bear your guilt. Uh, we see this again in First Kings uh, chapter 22, verse 16. Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And, and the consequence is guilt if you speak mm. falsely or if you refuse to speak. Uh, so that right there was a king demanding someone speak up. Proverbs twenty nine twenty four. he who is a partner with a thief hates his own life. He hears the oath, but tells nothing. So if you sit quiet, you are guilty by, mm. by default. Okay. Mm. So Jesus actually has to respond and he has to say something. Now, here's where this is fun in bringing it into the 21st century. We have an amazing uh, set of Miranda rights mm-hmm. where we are told that our silence will not be used against us in a court of law. Right. Isn't that an amazing right. thing? But in Levitical law, in, in ancient times, your silence was seen as you not telling the truth or holding back the information and then you would bear your own guilt. So it's just really interesting. We are very, we're very fortunate that we don't have to say anything. Uh, we, I might say that it's a problem too. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things sure. that, that go, uh, go unpunished because we allow people's silence to guarantee that they're uh, innocent, or at least that they're not guilty. And yeah. so that's a staggering thing. But here, Jesus has to say something. And so he responds and says, if I tell you, you won't believe. If I ask mm. a question, you will not answer. But from now on, here's my statement, <laughs> right? The son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And as the other gospels say, and you will see him when he's coming on the clouds. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Isn't it amazing that Jesus follows the law to a T here? And and they 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 broke their own law so many times. Let let me just I I love this detail. If you go into the and uh, into the, uh, the 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 Jewish laws and all of the things, all of the details of the law. First of all, according to Jew, to the Jewish law, criminal a criminal case couldn't be tried during the Passover season. Com- clearly, they broke that. Also, according to law, that an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial, but guilty verdicts had to be had to wait twenty four hours. And guess why they did did that? To allow for feelings of mercy to rise in the judges. It's 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 amazing. They didn't they didn't hold to that. According to Jewish law, all the evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. They didn't do that. According to Jewish law, a false witness was punishable by death. Nothing is done to the many false witnesses that Jesus in Jesus' trial. <laughs> the, according to Jewish law, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence for the innocence of the accused before the evidence of guilt was ever offered. That didn't happen here. The whole procedure that they had, their their laws were based on the fact that they needed to account for mercy at some point. (laughs) It is so ironic that it's it's clear that 
that they didn't do any of these things. They, they were far from even keeping their own rules, and they were absolutely even farther from having anything to do with mercy. Now, with all of that being said, here, here's, here's the issue. Jesus could have stopped this at any point if he had called upon his power as God. He could have stopped this. That was not the plan. He knew it wasn't the plan. God the Father knew it wasn't the plan. And, and they all thought, this is working out well for us. We're able to cover this up. We're able to break our own laws, and nobody's going to know. We get rid of this guy, job well done, according to the Sanhedrin. But that was not the case. It was, it was this had to ha- happen this way. Had to happen. So it, to, if you're a scholar of the law, if you're at, just go back and read some of these things, some of the laws that, that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the chief priests, that the laws, their own laws that they broke in doing this to Jesus. And there are a wealth of resources out there that you yes. can go and you can, you can see these things. They're, they're, they're very available to us. And, and it is, it paints a, a far more vivid picture of how, uh, how sad this kangaroo court really was, because that's exactly what it was. It was a joke from the outset. They were wanting him to simply confirm what they knew him to already be, which is the son of God. And when he does that, they they had already gone into this wanting to throw the book at him. And here is why this matters so much more than just a, a trivial court proceeding in our world today. They did not believe he was the son of God. They wanted him to say it so that they could call him a blasphemer and that they could crucify him. They wanted this to be done because they rejected the notion outright What is important about this story is they did not believe him to be who he claimed to be. There is a sad, sad outcome to people who do not believe Jesus to be who he claims to be. And and so these people will live by the very standard uh, that that they hold to. Their law said, if you falsely accuse, you're punishable by death. Well... God says the same thing, and they falsely accuse the Lord of glory. So verse 70, uh, but they all said, are you the son of God then? Look at how clear this question gets now. Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. That translation uh, is a very interesting translation because the the Greek is, is... it's just hard to render there, and it's written this way and yet interpreted in English several different ways all throughout the New Testament. So same exact Greek words rendered slightly different. So in this case, yes, I am. In other gospels, you say that I am. In other gospel, or in other gospel accounts, in another gospel account, it would say something like, um, you have said truly, you have said rightly, whatever it is, mm-hmm. no matter what, the, the answer is, yes, I am the son mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. I am the son of God. It's at that, verse 71 concludes this chapter, uh, then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? Well, they didn't, they didn't care about testimony anyway. They hadn't taken any but his, like you said, mm-hmm. they, they weren't even looking for innocence here. What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And 
right there, the whole body of them got up. This is into 23, but they got, they got up and they brought him before Pilate. They're just, it's done. We're, we're done with this situation. Played out exactly as they had hoped it would. Absolutely. Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.